This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. War, a concept as old as human civilization itself, has played a prominent role in shaping our history. While we continue to push for a world without war, one has to sadly acknowledge that this isn't the world we live in today. So amidst the chaos and devastation war brings, the necessity arises to distinguish between the ethical and the immoral. So what are the do's and don'ts of war? I'm Dashrin Johan, and this is Today I Learned. Joining me on the show to discuss this is Debashish Bais. He's a fellow at the Center for International Law, Research and Policy. Welcome to the show, Debashish. Hello, Dashrin. It's good to be back on the show. Um, let's start with this. Um, can you provide an overview of the basic principles and rules that govern the conduct of war, specifically when it comes to you know hot wars and armed conflict? Certainly. So what we are looking at is jus in bello in Latin. Uh, that is the laws of war, also called the laws of armed conflict. The modern day term for it is international humanitarian law, shortened to IHL. So the purpose of the IHL is to limit suffering and destruction during a war. And it does so by limiting means and methods of warfare and defining categories of persons and objects that are to be protected during warfare and situations of military occupation. There are a few key principles uh, to the IHL, uh, the foremost of them being the principle of distinction. That is, at all times during an armed conflict, uh, the combatants have to make a distinction between civilians and combatants so that civilians are not subjects of tax. They also have to make a distinction between civilian objects and military objectives. They have to ensure that there are no indiscriminate attacks being made, which can cause harm to uh, civilian objects while pursuing attacks on military objectives. The mm-hmm. other principles are of uh, proportionality. Uh, then there's requirement of taking precautions in, in military operations to ensure that civilians are not harmed. Uh, then there are specific regimes for ensuring protection of specifically protected persons and objects, such as medical personnel, humanitarian reliefs, uh, cultural property, etc. And uh, more importantly, there is a negative list of uh, methods of warfare and means of warfare uh, that should not be used. And, and lastly, there is a strict requirement of giving humane treatment to civilians and persons uh, who have been rendered or they combat, which is a term for those who've been, uh, uh, who have laid down their arms become sick and wounded and unable to participate in the war. I think you've given a very good overview of this topic, right? Because you mentioned um, proportionality, you've mentioned um, sort of um, cultural property, which we will get into um, individually later on. But what are some of the, the key do's and don'ts that combatants on the battlefield should adhere to during war? Well, Dashan, the first thing, the foremost thing here is for the combatants to do is to respect the IHL, really. Uh, 
Right. It goes a long way in ensuring good morale and discipline amongst the troops and in ensuring that your sick and wounded in the enemy hands are treated well. Uh, you have to follow precautions to spare civilians and civilian objectives. Uh, a constant care must be taken at all times uh, to make sure that civilians and civilian objects are not harmed. You have to verify targets. Uh, and if it becomes clear to you that the target that you're pursuing is a civilian target or civilians may be harmed, uh, then, then you need to abort that attack. And uh, if, if it becomes clear that there is a military necessity that you must uh, make an attack and civilians may be harmed as a result, then you have to give advance warning to the people who may be affected. And at the same time, you have to choose a means and methods of warfare uh, that would lead to least incidental damage to the civilians while pursuing your military objectives. Uh, and then there's uh, this requirement of treating the civilians and the persons uh, or the combat, as I discussed previously. Basically, uh, the combatants who laid down their arms, who become sick and wounded, uh, or otherwise unable to participate uh, humanly and without discrimination. Uh, and, and, and lastly, in terms of dues, I would say that uh, uh, the combatants should report any violations of the principles of IHL to their superiors, uh, so that a respect for IHL is maintained in the battlefield. Right. In terms of drones, um, I would say that uh, uh, combatants should remember that the uh, that the purpose of the war is to defeat the adversary and not annihilate it. So uh, again, uh, don't attack civilians or civilian objects. There is no reason for you to do so. Uh, don't make disproportionate attacks. Don't make indiscriminate attacks, uh, uh, which 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 even though targeting military objectives. Uh, just don't uh, discriminate and end up harming civilians. Uh, don't pillage, torture, or kill civilians or uh, perpetrate sexual violence. Um, don't attack medical personnel uh, or persons who are off the combat. And, and don't indulge in destruction, which is not justified by military necessity, which is basically just don't destroy any more than is required for you to fulfill uh, your military objectives. Don't indulge in what uh, we have seen in the past. Uh, it's termed as cost earth tactics, uh, wherein people just destroy everything in the enemy territory. Uh, so there is no chance for those people to come back to normal life after that war, after that war for a long time. Right. Um, Dev, you mentioned something interesting, right? Um, uh, in your response, where you say that you know, there is no reason um, for combatants to harm civilians, right? Could you contextualize that? Um, because for some people who may not be very familiar, right, the, the very concept of war is devastating. Um, it's, a, it's tragedy. You know, people suffer, um, economies suffer, um, loss of lives, um, you know, and so on and so forth. The idea of war in and of itself is something very devastating. How do you contextualize um, this idea that within something so devastating, there are these certain rules and regulations like you shouldn't harm civilians? Yes, it is true. Uh, looking at uh, 
the the modern uh, days wars and wars of the past do you think uh, that it involves uh, immense destruction and, and the lives of the civilians are upended but there was no reason for that to be so mm. uh, the wars are pursued for uh, for certain causes such as um, uh, such as self defense or to reach political aims and uh, the most direct way to do so is to attack uh, the, the the military capacity uh, of the adversary and civilians have no role to play here in fact if you think about the long term uh, aims of any war uh, that would be to to not only meet the military objectives but also to retain uh, uh, some respect internationally diplomatically and when you kill civilians when you harm civilians you damage your reputation for years to come you damage the chances of uh, a lasting peace in the future and uh, these actions will haunt you in the future so it is in no one's interest to kill civilians uh, i i think in a war there are no winners there are only losers mm-hmm. so in such a situation just don't make it worse by killing civilians and appending lives who who have nothing to do with it absolutely so on that note um how does international law regulate the use of force in armed conflict um you know we we, we talked about civilians and how civilians shouldn't be harmed um what measures are in place to protect civilians and minimize harm to them during an armed conflict uh, you have uh, the geneva convention of 1949 uh, the fourth geneva convention relative to the protection of civilian persons in times of war and uh, the purpose of this convention is to ensure humane treatment of civilians uh, it lists, lists general protection of populations against uh, consequences of war so there are uh, measures in it such as mutual recognition of hospitals and safety zones uh, neutral zones to shield civilians from attacks uh there are provisions in it to ensure that medical supplies supplies of food and clothing they keep running during the war and that the parties to the conflict do not stop these supplies uh there are protections against coercion uh hostage taking collective punishment uh collective punishment is uh basically uh instances where uh the enemy may uh, may punish civilians uh for the doings of their state uh and, and not punishing them individually but just uh punishing them as a group uh then there are protection against physical suffering such as torture uh, murder and other inhumane treatment uh and and under military occupation there there are certain protections against deportation to the territory of the occupying power or to other country there are also protections against uh, use of civilians uh, as forced labor uh, and, and and further there is protection against destruction of public and private property uh, during war uh, one thing important to note here is that under geneva convention there's a grave breaches regime which penalizes certain acts uh, which are committed against civilian population uh, so these includes uh, willful killing uh, torture or inhuman treatment 
subjecting people to biological experiments, causing great suffering uh, to, to the body or health of the individuals, uh, unlawful deportation or transfer or unlawful confinement uh, of these individuals, or forcing them to uh, serve in the in the forces of the hostile power. Uh, and uh, willfully depriving uh, these persons uh, of the right to fair trial. Uh, there's also uh, protection against uh, hostage taking uh, and extensive destruction uh, of property, which is not justified by military necessity. Right. You mentioned proportionality a couple of times. Could you explain that a little bit more? What exactly um, is this concept of proportionality in the context of armed conflict? So uh, in an armed conflict, um, uh, th there are these uh, um, conflicting ideas that on, on, on one side you have to achieve your military objectives and on the second, uh, on the other side, you have to ensure that civilians are not harmed. Right. So we are basically looking at a balance, you know, and, and, and weighing proportionality against military necessity. Uh, what is necessary for you to achieve your military objectives, and but what is the cost? What is the civilian cost of doing so? So as per the principle of proportionality, launching an attack which may be expected to cause incidental loss of civilian life, injury to civilians, damage to civilian objects, which would be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated is prohibited. So even a legitimate target may not be attacked if the collateral civilian casualties would be disproportionate to the specific military gain from that attack. So a military commander has to weigh the military advantage anticipated from that attack uh, and see what's the potential harm uh, to the civilians from that attack. Um, the military advantage has to be substantial and, and close. It can't be something which cannot be, uh, which is not perceptible or which will only appear in the long term. The advantage has to be direct and immediate and, and it has to be weighed against the potential uh, of harm to the civilians. On the show with me today is Devashish Bais. He's a fellow at the Center for International Law, Research and Policy. After the break, we discuss the measures that are put in place to protect civilians during war. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Devashish Bays. He's a fellow at the Centre for International Law, Research and Policy and we're talking about the do's and don'ts of war. So Devashish, when we talk about civilians, um, as I understand there are other groups of people um, that shouldn't be harmed um, during uh, you know, armed conflict as well, um, such as medics and, and journalists. Um, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Uh, there are various classes of individuals uh, that are specifically protected mm. uh, because of the purposes they serve. Right. And, and these include uh, the medical personnel uh, who, are, uh, who, who must be respected and protected uh, in all circumstances. Uh, but, but there are circumstances where they may lose their protection. Uh, mm -hmm. That is, if if they commit acts hostile uh, to the enemy forces, 
But until they are uh, just exclusively assigned to medical duties, uh, then they must be respected and protected at all times. They may even be permitted to carry light arms to protect themselves against uh, uh, bandits uh, or uh, lawlessness. Uh, just because they're carrying light arms doesn't make them combatants if they are uh, solely uh, assigned to medical duties and, uh, and attending to the wounded. Similarly, with the journalist, um, the civilian journalists that are engaged in uh, professional missions, uh, they are again uh, similar to the medical profession uh, personnel to be respected and protected. Uh, again, the the, uh, uh, the exception is uh, when a journalist may take a, a direct part in the hostilities. At that time, they may lose uh, that protection. But unless they are uh, involved in just reporting uh, and and not participating in the war, they they are to be specifically protected uh, and respected. Um, there's uh, another issue here with, uh, with terms to, uh, in terms of journalists. Mm -hmm. That is, um, you may have seen that there are uh, various journalists which are accredited to the armed forces. Uh, they travel with the armed forces and uh, they, they may be within those ranks themselves. Uh, but just because uh, they are accredited to the armed forces doesn't mean that they are combatants. Uh, it does, however, entitle them to a prisoner of war status if they are captured. Uh, but again, uh, these journalists are also to be protected. Right. Um, earlier, you also talked a little bit about cultural property. Um, how does international law address um, you know, these issues? Um, are there any guidelines when it comes to you know, targeting cultural property and heritage sites, um, you know, for example, temples, churches, mosques, um, so on and so forth? Yeah, absolutely, Dashan. Um, special care must be taken in military operations to avoid damage to buildings dedicated to, uh, let's say, religion, art, mm. science, education. Uh, historical monuments, unless uh, they are military objectives. Um, and, and there is a 1954 convention, uh, the Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the Event of Armed Conflict. Uh, about 111 countries have signed up to that convention. And, and besides this, this has become part of customary international law, uh, which is to say that uh, it has uh, the obligations under that convention uh, hold true for all countries of the world today. Um, and, and one of the key things this convention does uh, is to ensure that the uh, cultural property is protected at all times and it creates a, a very high threshold uh, for situations where uh, these properties uh, may be attacked. And, and this threshold is of uh, an imperative military necessity. So they're talking about it's not just a military necessity to attack that cultural object, but it is imperative uh, for you to do so uh, because it has become a military objective and there is just no other alternative uh, to get that military advantage uh, other than attacking uh, that cultural object. Uh, but uh, they've also created a, a specific mark uh, a blue and white shield, uh, which is which which is to be placed on these protected cultural property 
to to render them uh, safe from attacks uh, during a war. And uh, there are various other uh, measures uh, under that convention to protect cultural property. Uh, basically, their obligations to protect uh, during war uh, cultural property from theft, pillage, misappropriation, vandalism, etc. Right. Um, is my understanding correct um, when I say, let's say if two countries are um, going to war, um, and let's say country A bombs country B's uh, military base, um, that is generally within the rules of uh, or what is um, acceptable. But if let's say the, one of the countries go and bomb um, the other country's museum or a science center or, or other cultural um, or, or places or, or, or schools, for example, and, and things like that, then that would be illegal. Oh, yes, that would be illegal for sure. Uh, right. Because, right. Uh, the thing is, this, this can be considered as a reprisal. Uh, uh, under law that is you are exacting vengeance by just destroying uh senselessly anything you find you're destroying the culture uh, right. the, the the means of education uh this is this is illegal there is no reason for an enemy to do so um so devishish i also want to talk about uh, weapons right and tactics what are some of the prohibited weapons and tactics that should be avoided during war so this is a key feature of the IHL regime uh, that is to make a negative list of uh, methods and means of warfare that are not to be used. So when we're talking about weapons, weapons that are by their very nature indiscriminate, which cannot differentiate between uh, civilians and combatants are prohibited. So to give you example, that would be uh, the V1 and V2 rockets that uh, Nazi Germany used to attack uh, UK during the Second World War. There would be these V2 rockets that would just fly uh, across the English Channel and just land anywhere uh, in the UK, uh, and causing not just terror, but also a lot of uh, damage to the civilians. Um, one of the most indiscriminate weapons are nuclear weapons. They, they're just dumb weapons. They cannot differentiate between the targets. And, and they cause a long-term and severe damage to the natural environment. Uh, uh, they, they have immense consequences uh, to any life in the place uh, where they may detonate. Uh, so nuclear weapons, again, is, is something which is prohibited under IHL. Uh, and then there are weapons which cause unnecessary suffering and superfluous injury. So these are, for instance, biological weapons, chemical weapons, poison or poison weapons. Um, the earliest examples of uh, weapons that were prohibited in warfare were uh, exploding or expanding bullets uh, because they caused a lot of unnecessary suffering. Uh, and, and, and the international community at that time decided that this need to be outlawed. In terms of tactics, there are certain methods of warfare that are prohibited. Uh, so one of those is denial of quarter, saying that there will be no survival, uh, we will kill all combatants, uh, declaring that is illegal. Uh, again, making attacks on people who've been wounded or who are sick, uh, as I used the term earlier, uh, or they combat. Uh, 
Another prohibited tactic is uh, improper use of flag of truce, you know, the white flag. Right. Uh, this is probably, I think, uh, uh, something which is uh, very popular uh, in the popular culture. We've even seen cartoon shows uh, where a character will show the white flag and uh, that would mean <laughs> yeah. that we're in. So uh, you cannot use that flag of truce improper, improperly, uh, improperly and uh, just get out the enemy forces by uh, making this deception of surrendering and uh, when they are out attacking them. That is illegal. Uh, and, and there are other uh, prohibited tactics such as pillaging uh, the, uh, the civilian populations, uh, civilian property, uh, using starvation as a method of warfare, uh, attacking objects that are indispensable to the survival of civilian populations such as foodstuffs, uh, agricultural areas, uh, livestock, drinking water supplies, etc. So um, another aspect um, when it comes to war, um, you know, when, when two countries are, are added or, or multiple countries, you know, um, oftentimes um, prisoners are taken, um, taken alive um, to, to, you know, seek for information and, and so on and so forth. Um, are there any specific guidelines or rules regarding the treatment of prisoners of war um, and captured combatants? From 1949, you have four Geneva Conventions. Mm-hmm. And three of those conventions deal with prisoners of war and uh, sick, wounded, and the shipwrecked members of the armed forces. Uh, so uh, in, in, in terms of the sick and wounded, uh, there's a requirement that they are treated humanly, uh, humanely and cared for by the party of the conflict under whose hand they are. And... Uh, there's, there's requirements such as uh, that at all times uh, during an engagement, parties uh, take measures to search and collect for the wounded and the sick. Uh, this is to ensure that the war doesn't cause uh, any more suffering than it's already causing. Uh, in terms of the prisoners of war, uh, their requirements under the Third Geneva Convention of giving humane treatment to the prisoners, uh, protecting their persons, uh, ensuring that uh, they are maintained while being interned. Uh, Their provisions of uh, food, clothing, hygiene, uh, good conditions of interment. Uh, There are even laws on uh, in what conditions the prisoners of war may be used for labor. Uh, There are even provisions of uh, making payments to the prisoners uh, for the labor they may offer, uh, their provisions for repatriation of prisoners of war after the war. Uh, right. So uh, this is again ensuring that there is no lasting damage from the war, uh, that the people who may uh, fall in the enemy hands, the combatants who may fall in the enemy hands, uh, are taken care of uh, and, and handed over uh, to the adversary at the end of hostilities. And, and, and again, this is ensuring for both the sides of the conflict uh, that, that their members of the armed forces who may have fallen in the enemy hands are treated well, uh, not tortured, uh, uh, not killed, uh, but are safe and, and are to be returned at the end of hostilities. Right. Now, Devashish, in recent years, um, we have seen an increase in the use of new technologies, right? Um, such as drones, um, cyber warfare. 
how does international law and, and the international law community adapt to and, and regulate these emerging challenges in armed conflict? Uh, yes, it's quite challenging, Dashan, uh, <laughs> because you see, uh, <laughs> uh, you can say that the ISL principles are made for the future, uh, the way they have defined, uh, basically, they will even apply to uh, even future ways of fighting right. you know, by putting this requirement of not harming civilians, uh, making distinction, observing proportionality, taking precautions, etc. However, what happens is uh, this new uh, methods of warfare, the new means of warfare, uh, they come with their own unique challenges. So we need to tweak it a little bit. Right. So uh, you can say that IHL applies to cyber warfare uh, and use of drones just as well as applies to other methods and means of warfare. But, you know, the devil is in the detail. Mm. Uh, so, for instance, the principle of distinction and proportionality, say, of civilians and civilian objects from attacks um, that are typically defined as acts of violence against the adversary. Now, it is not very clear if cyber attacks can classify as acts of violence at all times, uh, because cyber attacks could not have physical manifestations. It could just be a large-scale attack on, let's say, banking facilities right. of the adversary. Uh, there are no physical ramifications of it, but it is an attack. It is causing a lot of destruction in that mm -hmm. country, uh, which I would say is just not proportionate ever. Um, but obviously, there are also cyber attacks uh, which uh, can have physical ramifications, which can lead to violence. For instance, if there are attacks on medical facilities, which leads right. to uh, medical facilities becoming dysfunctional. Uh, that can directly lead to loss of life of people who are in those hospitals. Uh, a lot of infrastructure is now connected to uh, to, uh, to to the internet, and, and cyber attacks could lead uh, critical infrastructure to fail. It could uh, lead uh, water supplies or to 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 not reach people. Right. Uh, for uh, electricity grid to fail, these are essential things, and and, and that could end up. Uh, causing physical harm right. uh, to a lot of people. Uh, but the other challenge is that uh, here we are at the risk of running undeclared wars because, mm. you see, uh, there is a threshold for an armed conflict to start. If you just do cyber operations, uh, which are below a threshold of violence, then, then you are uh, always in this constant uh, uh, warfare, undeclared warfare. Uh, that is not to say that cyber warfare, which is accompanied uh, during an armed conflict, won't be covered. It is a common understanding now that uh, if, if there are kinetic hostilities happening and cyber warfare are used as part of it, that will be covered under IHL. Uh, there are no doubts about that. However, the gray area lies where there's only just a cyber operation of war right. and nothing else. There are no kinetic hostilities happening. Uh, similarly, uh, there are issues with terms of drones as well. Uh, you see, like drones, you, you, one can possibly argue that drones can facilitate a better implementation of ISL principle mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, the drones loiter, they're observing the battlefield for a long time. So they have a lot of opportunity to make a distinction between uh, civilians and combatants 
from civilian uh, objects and military objectives right. to you know observe if we attack what will be the effects uh, of it will the civilians be harmed one can do so if you are loitering in the air for hours yeah, absolutely uh, but at the same time you know uh, without a ground confirmation uh, this identification can be uh, filled with error uh, for instance uh, what may seem like a gathering of militia from the air could be a peaceful protest by the civilians. Um, there's another unique problem with the drones, which is their psychological effect. If if you know that a drone which has been loitering for days over you uh, can at any time attack anywhere, anywhere you can see, uh, then it will cause terror mm -hmm. uh, to the civilians on the ground who would feel powerless because they don't know who's operating that drone or whether it is autonomous. Uh, and, and that would certainly lead to uh, a feeling of terror uh, mm -hmm. in the civilians who are on the ground. Um, there are also other new challenges which are cropping up. Uh, I would say uh, the, the foremost of those would be the use of autonomous weapon systems uh, in the future. What does um, that mean? Just imagine Darshan having killer robots. Robots wow, who can right. try to kill. Uh, that would be very challenging. Uh, and, and fortunately, uh, I don't know of any instance so far where uh, this has happened, where an autonomous system has made the decision uh, to kill. But with all this uh, noise about artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how far in the future uh, th this is. Absolutely. I mean, not to make light of the situation, but that is essentially the plot of the latest Mission Impossible movie, where we have an AI that has become sort of sentient and, and the, the amount of power that this uh, autonomous, um, like you said, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, what can it, it uh, unleash on, on societies, um, you know, if we ever get there, right? Um, so with, with all of that in mind, um, Devashish, what are the consequences or, or potential repercussions for individuals or states that violate these do's and don'ts during war? Yeah, so as we discussed uh, also in the last episode, uh, which mm. was on the war crimes, right? Uh, so you have, uh, foremost, you have individual criminal responsibility for the people who commit the war crimes. Uh, so... Uh, this is not to say that every violation of the IHL uh, would be a war crime, uh, but there are certain uh, certain aspects of IHL which have been penalized, uh, that there is a provision of penal punishment for the violation of those uh, provisions. And, and individuals who uh, violate those, uh, they, they, they can be held criminally responsible individually. Uh, but also, uh, moving beyond individuals, you have uh, responsibility for commanders and, and other superiors for war crimes they may order to be committed. Uh, the commanders may also be responsible if, if they fail to act uh, against their subordinates who, who may be committing war crimes. If they know that they're committing crimes or about to commit crimes, they need to take all uh, necessary and reasonable measures in their power to prevent the commissions of those crimes. And if, if they fail to do anything, uh, uh, then, then these commanders and superiors uh, may be criminally responsible uh, for those crimes. 
at the same time, uh, one cannot use uh, a superior order as a defense in a criminal trial. They cannot just say that, oh, my superior told me to commit this war crime, so I went on <laughs> and committed. Uh, if, if you know, if a combatant knows uh, that the order is unlawful, it is manifestly unlawful, then they have to refuse to obey it. Uh, if they pursue that illegal, manifestly illegal uh, order uh, and commit war crimes in the process, uh, then they will still be uh, individually responsible for it. So uh, there are various levels where this criminal responsibility can take place. Uh, it can start at your army. It can start as a court-martial proceeding uh, at your armed forces. Uh, but also it can happen at the international level, as we discussed at uh, in the previous episode. Uh, it can happen with international criminal tribunals, uh, or at the International Criminal Court. There are also chances of prosecution by enemy forces. Uh, if you've committed war crimes if, and you fall in, uh, under enemy hands, uh, they may prosecute you for the war crimes. Uh, but besides individual responsibility, uh, there's also responsibility on the states uh, for violations of IHL that is attributable to them. So violations that are committed by a state's armed forces, uh, that can be attributed to the state. Uh, uh, violations that are committed by uh, their leaders, uh, even though they may be acting uh, beyond what is authorized uh, for them, uh, even, even those actions are attribu attributable to the state. And... Uh, uh, under the laws of state responsibility. Uh, uh, basically, they have to either make restitution, compensation, or, or, or ensure satisfaction uh, uh, as reparation for, uh, for violations of IHL. Devashish, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Darshan. That was Devashish Bey. He's a fellow at the Center for International Law Research and Policy. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.